Well, good morning. Good morning. Okay, we got a couple people alive. We're going to try this again. Good morning. Good morning. Yes. Okay. Because I'm going to ask a lot of you this, this sermon. And that, what that means is that I'm going to ask you to participate in this sermon with me. So just to get, get you primed, there's going to be some moments where I'm going to ask you to be involved. And actually, it's going to help me even more if you are involved. So if you have your Bibles, go ahead and turn with me to Genesis 35. Genesis 35. We are finishing out what we have called the Jacob cycle. Now, Jacob still exists through the rest of Genesis, but the focus switches from Jacob to Joseph in the latter half. So we're finishing what we're calling the Jacob cycle. So as soon as you've turned to Genesis 35, just tell me you got it. Got it? Okay, one or two people got it. Okay, perfect. So it reads this way, Genesis 35, verse 1, going all the way to 29. God said to Jacob, Arise, go up to Bethel and dwell there. Make an altar there to the God who appeared to you when you fled from your brother Esau. So Jacob said to his household and to all who were with him, Put away the foreign gods that are among you and purify yourselves and change your garments. Then let us arise and go up to Bethel, so that I may make an altar there to the God who answers me in the day of my distress and has been with me wherever I've gone. So they gave to Jacob all the foreign gods that they had and the rings that were in their ears, and Jacob hid them under the terebinth tree that was near Shechem. And as they journeyed, a terror from God fell upon the cities that were around them, so that they did not pursue the sons of Jacob. And Jacob came to Luz, that is Bethel, which is in the land of Canaan, he and all the people who were with him. And there he built an altar and called the place El Bethel, because there God had revealed himself to him when he fled from his brother. And Deborah, Rebekah's nurse, died, and she was buried under an oak below Bethel. So he called its name Alon Bekuth. God appeared to Jacob again when he came from Padaram and blessed him. And God said to him, Your name is Jacob. No longer shall your name be called Jacob, but Israel shall be your name. So he called his name Israel. And God said to him, I am God Almighty. Be fruitful and multiply, and a nation and a company of nations shall come from you, and kings shall come from your own body. The land that I gave to Abraham and Isaac, I will give to you, and I will give the land to your offspring after you. And then God went up from him in the place where he had spoken with him. And Jacob set up a pillar in the place where he had spoken with him, a pillar of stone. He poured out a drink offering on it and poured oil on it. So Jacob called the name of the place where God had spoken with him. Bethel. Then they journeyed from Bethel. When they were still some distance from Ephrath, Epaphrath, Rachel went into labor and had a hard labor. And when her labor was at its hardest, the midwife said to her, do not fear for you have another son. And as her soul was departing, for she was dying, she called his name Benoni. But his father called him Benjamin. So Rachel died and was buried on the way to Ephrath, that is Bethlehem. And Jacob set up a pillar over her tomb. It is, a pillar, it is the pillar of Rachel's tomb, which is there to this day. Israel journeyed on and pitched his tent beyond the Tower of Eder. While Israel lived in that land, Reuben went to lay with Bilhah, his father's concubine. And Israel heard of it. Now the sons of Jacob were twelve. The sons of Leah, Reuben, Jacob's firstborn, Simeon, Levi, Judah, Issachar, and Zebulun. The sons of Rachel, Joseph, and Benjamin. The sons of Bilhah, Rachel's servant, Dan, and Naphtali. The sons of Zilpah, Leah's servant, Gad, and Asher. These were the sons of Jacob who were born to him in Padanaram. And Jacob came to his father Isaac at Mamre, or Kirath Araba, that is Hebron, where Abraham and Isaac had sojourned. Now the days of Isaac were 180 years, 
And Isaac breathed his last, and he died, and was gathered to his people old and full of days. And his sons Esau and Jacob buried him. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Father, we ask now that you would speak to us by your word. These people don't want to hear from a 32-year-old man, but they want to hear from the voice of God. So speak to us your word. Speak to us, Jesus. Holy Spirit, fill this place. Give us hope, newness of life. Give us Jesus. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Ted Lasso. How many people have watched Ted Lasso? All of you who didn't raise your hand, it doesn't matter because I'm going to tell you the whole plot line. Let's talk about the shape of his story for a second. So Ted, Ted is an American football coach who goes to Europe to be a football coach. European football, soccer in America. Ted's story, I want to say to you, is one of exile and homecoming. Ted leaves his family alone and goes to Richmond to coach a soccer team. And as the story progresses, you get more of the backstory of why Ted is in Richmond through various different angles. But mostly if you just look at his story, his life back in Kansas is going to shambles. He's left his family, essentially getting divorced and separated from his wife. And he is now in a foreign place by himself, teaching a foreign game that he has no business teaching, no business coaching. And as you watch his story progress, you see the past and the present start to, or the future start to collide in his present. You see much of what happens in his past bleed into his own life. Essentially, Ted's story is one of exile and homecoming because at the end of the last season, where does Ted find himself, for those who have watched the entire thing? On a plane, opening a door to a car, back home with his wife and son. From exile to homecoming. I told you I was going to ruin it for you. So it's still a good show to watch. Watch it. So what you witness happen in Ted's life is you witness him become Ted. You think he's Ted when he shows up, but really as the show progresses, he becomes Ted. His story is one of exile to homecoming and essentially becoming who he is. And until the end of the story, you really don't quite recognize that. You don't pick up on it. It's a powerful narrative of becoming And what I want to say to you is that this same story is true of Jacob. So the story that we love about Ted Lasso, of his exile to homecoming, the things that we get wrapped up into, God wrote that reality into existence. And it comes into view here with the story of Jacob. Jacob's story is that of exile to homecoming, which is the title of this sermon, From Exile to Homecoming. And you can see it in various aspects of his story. So Genesis 27, 41. Initially, Jacob is estranged from his family. Why? He stole his brother's birthright and his brother threatened to kill him. So he is estranged, ripped away from his father's home, sent off into a foreign land alone by himself. He was forced to reside there, Genesis 29, far from his home. His life took a significant turn when he comes to Laban's house in that foreign land where he is pretty much treated as a slave, a servant. And all along throughout this exile that Jacob is in, God is very, very, very involved. God made a promise to Jacob here at Bethel, which our text draws us to, or Luz, in Genesis 28. There's a poignant wrestling that Jacob has with God in Genesis 32. And at the point of that wrestling, Jacob has accumulated 
so much in the midst of exile. He has a family. He has sons. He has wealth. He has so much, but he's still in exile. God is still working things out in him, even in that moment. The fear of his brother. What will my brother do to me? We just, Pastor John just preached on this last week. Is he's afraid of what his brother might do to him, but he's also very aware of God behind him. So Jacob is very, has a wrestling match with God at the Jabbok. And finally, here in Genesis 35, we see God speak very clearly to Jacob. And he tells him to arise and go to Bethel. They've been encamped at Shechem. And I, if you've noticed, we aren't going to Genesis 34, and that's not because we're, not, we're afraid to preach or teach or talk about Genesis 34. That's just pragmatically trying to close the narrative so that we can teach something different next week. But in Shechem, you know how dark it was for Jacob and his family, for his daughter, for his sons who slaughter an entire people. And so Jacob is coming from a place that is dark in exile, and God tells him to arise and go to Bethel. So Jacob's story, if you can't already tell, is actually a pattern of exile to homecoming. He started in the confines of his father's house and due to the webs of sin and deception, he moves out of that house. And all along, progressively, you see this sort of spiraling down in the life of Jacob, but at the very same time, you see the hand of God blessing him. Physically and spiritually, it's a downward trajectory, but at the same time, God is engaged and interacting with him in such a way that he is actually gaining while he's losing visibly. And that's not something he conjured up. If you think about our own world, the way we gain is upward mobility. We don't lose to gain. We don't. We gain by going upward, by gaining more things as we progressively gain, have more influence, not by going downward. But why did this complex narrative unfold in such a downward trajectory, both physically and spiritually for Jacob? And what I want to say to you is God is trying to get into our hearts and our lives the shape of redemption, the shape of what it looks like for you and for I to be transformed, to be changed. Jacob's life is this, and it's this point that we need to take home out of all of this, is that in our journey from exile to home, God is using the what's or even the who's of life to shape the who of you. Now that's a mouthful. He's using the what's or the who's of life to shape the who of you. And if you don't understand what I mean by who, it's your identity. It's who you are becoming. Ted was Ted at one point at the beginning of the story of Ted Lasso, but he was really Ted at the end of it. After he had dealt with his past, engaged with his present, and then realized what his future was. And so while while exile to homecoming is the, is the shape of life with God. That is true for all of us. It is the shape of life with God. It's the shape of redemption. It's the shape of grace that is restoring you and I to the very image of God we, we were created to be. So what I want you to do is I want you to look at your neighbor and I want you to say, grace restores nature. Grace restores nature. Okay, let's try it again. Look at your neighbor and say, grace restores nature. Grace restores nature. Here we go. We're going to get it. We're going to get there. And I want you to know what Ed Sheeran so eloquently penned <laughs> is the shape of you is being restored here. The shape of you is being forged by the grace of God as you journey from exile to homecoming. Ed was on to something, the shape of you, and God has that shape. Oftentimes we'll look at ourselves and we think, I know the shape of me. But in reality, the Bible pulls us out of ourselves and says, God defines the shape of you. And how God chooses to define that, well, friends, I don't know if you know this or if you've lived long enough, 
It's not the way that we would choose to define or shape ourselves. Some of you laugh because you know it's true. Some of you are silent because you know it's true. It's true. So, the you that I am addressing here, though, when I say the shape of you, is you in the room who call yourselves a Christian. That's who I'm addressing here. So for the Christian, this world as we know it is not our home. It's not our home. We are in exile now. We are exiles in a foreign land and Jesus is taking us on our way home. And it is while we are going from exile toward home that God will use the what's or even the who's to shape the who of you. But if you happen to be here today and you don't claim that identity as a Christian, I want to invite you to just be here, to observe, to look at this text alongside of me and alongside of us, and maybe consider the fact that your life is not a life of happenstance. Your life is not just by chance, but that God has you here in this moment to hear this story to give you the shape of your life and who he desires for you to become. So perhaps by lending an ear to his word today, you might hear him speak to you, extending an invitation to you to become a part of this story. So this is the big question that we will be exploring as we look through this story of Jacob as it comes to a close How does God's grace restore the shape of you? How does God's grace restore the shape of you? And so as we come to scene one in verses one through eight, if you have your Bibles, just look at it, look at it with me now. God's grace begins by calling you out. Remember the you I'm talking to as Christians here is calling you out and burying your idols. It's calling you out and burying your idols. So by way of illustration, imagine yourself or your life as a messy counter full of distractions. God's grace is like a gentle hand motioning you to come get up and discard the chaos. This is like the kitchen counter in my apartment. And you can ask my wife about the kitchen counter in our apartment. Because as I go in day in and day out, things begin to accumulate on my kitchen counter. And that kitchen counter does not become a kitchen counter anymore. It becomes a collector of random stuff. Stuff that I tell my wife, no, we can't put that anywhere. I need to have it out so I can know where it's at, so I can see it, so I can grab a hold of it. It brings me comfort knowing that I've put all of this stuff all over the kitchen counter and I know exactly where it's at. So as the days and weeks go by, our counter becomes covered with things that distract it from its purpose. Jacob and all who follow him have a messy counter of a life full of distractions from foreign idols they've accumulated while on this journey through exile in a foreign land and even there in Shechem. The text says to us, though, that in the darkness and utter chaos that Jacob is coming out of or is in in Shechem, he says to him, what? Arise and go. And what does Jacob do, friends? Does he wait around? Does he sit there and twiddle his thumbs? What does he do? He arises and he goes. You're right. He doesn't contemplate what he should be doing or whether he should be staying here in Shechem or what these idols should even be doing here. What does he say to his family? Put away Put away your idols. God is saying to him, arise and go to worship me. This is an act of worship God is calling him to. So Christian, God is calling you to an act of worship today. And what he's saying to you is to put away, put away your idols. That's what Jacob does immediately to this text. He hears the voice of God calling him out and he responds right away. There's no delay. There's no pondering. There's no considering. There's no holding tightly to something. So for Christians, God is essentially calling us out in the same way. 
We can hear the voice of God. And instead, I know you know this, you can hear the voice of God saying something to you. And instead of going right away and putting away the idols, what do we do? We contemplate. We say to God, we bargain with God. We go, no, but this brings me so much comfort. This brings me so much assurance. This brings me so much pleasure. That old life that I had, gosh, this is so familiar. I can't leave it. I can't bury it. I can't put it away. We get the habits and the things that we had once had and they become comfortable to us. And the thing about idols is that they are images of lesser gods. Your heart was made to worship. This is an act of worship that Jacob is having. And he's saying to God, I will put away all things to worship you. Friends, you have a God-sized hole in your life that needs to be filled, not by stuff here in this world, not by idols brought with you from Shechem, or in, in exile, but from the God who says to you, arise and go to Bethel. So in exile, our kitchen counter, which is us, can become cluttered. Its function as a counter can become muddied. Its beauty and usefulness, your beauty and usefulness, can become hindered as you travel through this world. Idols don't make us more human. They functionally make us less. They take and they take and they take and they don't give anything back to you. Some of you know what this feels like. Some of you know right now because you are holding on to idols instead of worshiping freely the God who can make you more human. It's not until we hear the voice of God calling us to go up and meet him in worship, that we actually become who we are created to be. Hear me. It is not till we hear God say to us, come and worship me, that you are actually going to be who you were created to be. There is nothing here in this world that can say to you and can restore to you your very nature than that of the God who created the things that you are worshiping right now. So leave the things that you're worshiping right now and go up to him. So just yesterday, my family and I made the decision to tidy up our kitchen. And well, really, Alicia tidied up the kitchen counter. I just watched. But removing, removing all of the items that I had put there, I had put there. I didn't clean them up. She did. It's a bit like what Jacob does with his people when he calls them to ascend to Bethel with him, the house of God for worship. Jacob, much like us, surveyed the countertop of their lives and his lives and recognized the need for a clean slate. You see that? He says, clean up, get dressed. That isn't so much him saying, oh, I need to get myself together to come to God. No, that's him, see, that's him putting God in the right perspective in the right place. That seeing that God is so utterly holy that everything that I've given myself to makes me trash. I need to get rid of it because God is going to make me new. God is going to make me something that I could never even have imagined myself being. So he says to them, bury the idols. So Jacob remembered on that call to Bethel, the angels that were descending and ascending the ladder, reminding him of the God who met him in that very place. And this is the God of his father and grandfather, the God who called Abraham to journey into the unknown, into exile. This is the same God who was with his father Isaac and the God who engaged Jacob in an intense wrestling match at the Jabbok. This is who Jacob was seeing in his view. And it made everything in their company pale in comparison. So let's get rid of the idols. Let's trash them. And he says to his people, the God who answered me in the day of my distress is with me wherever I go. So it wasn't so much that God had left Jacob. It's that Jacob had left God. It's that Jacob had collected these idols amongst his people, trying to worship something that would, that would show them comfort and satisfaction and a lesser God. But he says here to them, 
God has answered me in my distress. What distress is he talking about? Chapter 34, um, in the house of Laban. This is the God who answered Jacob in his distress, not the idols. The idols didn't stop or answer them in distress. The idols were with him wherever he went, but they didn't say anything to him. They didn't do anything for him. They didn't engage with him. God has been with him wherever he has gone. So what did Jacob do with these idols, friends? What did he do? He buried them. He buried them. Not just in like a place where I'm gonna go back and visit them, sort of bury. He buried them at Shechem. He buried them under a tree. And in this act, Jacob's family responded to the call of God to worship and they put away their idols. And Jacob proceeded to bury those idols under a tree. And trees hold a significant symbolism in the Bible. But one tree in particular, friends, one tree is where God is calling you to bury all of your idols. And the thing is, is he knows that you won't be able to do it. That one tree in essence is Jesus burying idols for you. And what he's saying is, behold the tree, bring your idols, let me bury them. Here is the profound connection, is that Jesus is the ultimate and superior Jacob, and he buries the idols at the foot of his tree. And they're not for you to come back to. They're not for you to go look and find. No, he buries them and puts them to death. And the act is that we receive cleansing and clothing when Jesus buries our idols. So as we journey through this life, the grace of Jesus continually calls us out, helping us bury our idols. And in the words of Jacob, we can affirm that Jesus is the God who answers us in our distress. So friends, if you are distressed today, I wanna say it's because of the idols that you are worshiping. It's because you're living in exile and God is calling out to you right now. Come to me and worship. Let me bury it for you. Let me bring comfort and blessing and flourishing in a way that you could never imagine. That money, that relationship, those drugs, all of that stuff, it will not bring you the satisfaction that you long for. Bring it to Jesus, let him bury it and let him give you a new life. Amen. So you might be wondering, okay, God's grace begins to restore me by calling me out of the mess and distraction of my idols and into worshiping him. But I often find myself returning to the distractions and, and wavering in my worship. How do we keep going? How do we as Christians keep going? Well, it's important to note that God's grace not only restores us by calling us out and burying our idols, but in the second scene, we'll see that God's grace proceeds by powerfully defining your purpose. God's grace proceeds by profoundly and powerfully defining your purpose. Friends, we've all been there. We all are probably there now. We get distracted and we don't bury the idols that God speaks and calls us out to bury. But when God speaks over his people and they receives his words, they can and will bury their idols and they can and they do get a new identity that the things you used to worship, the things that you used to do, they do not define who you are. They do not set your identity. God does. And we see that very specifically happening here. But by way of illustration, I remember the first time that someone actually came to me and said, Ryan, do you know what your name means? And I looked at them puzzling, like puzzled and confused. I thought to myself, no, I have no idea what my name means. And I was at a friend's engagement party and his, uh, her sister came up to me in the middle of a conversation and was like, well, why don't we find out what your name means? So with my puzzled look, I immediately pulled out my phone and I started to Google. And I Googled the first thing that popped up and I go, oh, that's interesting. It says a little king. And so I looked at her and I go, I guess it means, I guess it means little king. And I didn't know what to do with that. And she looked at me with such confidence and such boldness. And she says to me, go ahead and live in that name, little king. And I thought to myself for a second, <laughs> what did you just say to me? 
go ahead and live in that little name, little king. But at the, but at the moment that I was confused, simultaneously, you know what I felt? Dignified. Little king. Nobody's ever told me that. My name's Ryan. I'm named after a baseball player. No. She goes, your name means little king. You need to live into that name. And she spoke it over me with such confidence, such boldness, as if she had named me. She didn't name me. But what she said to me made me stand up a little taller. It made me, it made me consider my name a little differently. It made me walk in a totally different way. So much so that I'm telling you right now about a story of a random woman who told me my name. God does the same here with Jacob. The exact same thing. He speaks a new name over him. This isn't the first time we've heard God speak this name over him. He spoke it to him at the Jabbok. But what I want to say is that that was just a little prophecy to this moment. To this moment where God would say to Jacob, your name is not Jacob. It will be Jacob no more. What does God say to Jacob? Your name is what? Israel. Your name is Israel. Jacob wrestled with God and, the Mos and Moses, the writer of the story of Jacob, was just priming his pump for this very moment. For this very moment. And names in the Old Testament carry so much weight. And that weight is attached to identity. And who you are is wrapped up in your name. And Jacob's name now is no longer what? Deceiver. Your name is no longer heroin addict. Your name is no longer abused. Your name is no longer fill in the blank. God calls you by name. And what he does is he says, you are my child. And in the same way, God is saying to Jacob, you are no longer a deceiver, but Israel means contender with God. Contender with God. And not only do we get Jacob to Israel here, but God gives us his own name in some ways. What does it say? I am God Almighty. I am God Almighty. El Shaddai. I am God Almighty. Why does this matter? If names matter in the Bible, then the name that God reveals means something. God Almighty. Does anyone remember the Sunday school song? And if you do, I want you to sing it with me. My God is so big, so strong and so mighty. There's nothing my God cannot do. My God is so big, so strong and so mighty. There's nothing my God cannot do. You sang that song probably as a little child, right? God Almighty, my God is so big. My God is so strong. My God is so mighty. There is nothing my God cannot do. And he starts with Jacob saying, you are Israel. I am the Lord God Almighty. Be fruitful and multiply. <laughs> yes, yes. Jacob is renamed by the most powerful being in the universe. El, Sh El Shaddai speaks of power. It speaks of God being the one who holds the keys to everything. God Almighty says to Jacob, be fruitful and multiply. The one whom Jacob contended with is here. And he says, I am God Almighty. And by God's grace, he physically wounded Jacob so that he might realize God is Almighty. And he might be eternally blessed by remembering that walk. Not because of anything Jacob could have done. His track record, my friends, was tainted. It was torn. It was worn out. It was failure after failure. But because of the, because of the God Almighty, this is the start of Jacob coming home and being reinstated with the blessing 
be fruitful and multiply. And friends, we can think of God's grace as a master sculptor. Your life in his hands, formless, shapeless, being molded, God Almighty, shaping you through the what's and the who's of your own exile here in this world as you follow him into something, the name that he has called you and giving you a purpose and a definition. So God Almighty, the sculptor of Jacob's life has said to him, I have been forming you like clay. And he's saying to us now, I have been forming you like clay. And as the church father Augustine once wrote, God speaks to Jacob as Jacob in the present, but names him Israel about his future. God speaks to Jacob as Jacob in the present, but names him Israel, which is about his future. God Almighty, the God of all powerful grace that is constant from the beginning of Jacob's life to the end of Jacob's life. God Almighty, who is powerful and constant and full of grace at the beginning of Dana's life and the end of Dana's life, the beginning of Ray's life and the end of Ray's life and on and on and on. So as we conclude this point, God proclaims his might to Israel so that they may more certainly rely on his faithfulness, be reminded of his faithfulness. And as God powerfully proclaims his purposes to them, be fruitful and multiply, a reconstitution of the purpose that was formed and shaped and proclaimed over Adam in the garden is being proclaimed here. The very dignity that was stripped away and is leached off of all of us by sin and death is being restored here at the moment that God names Israel. God restores to him dignity and he says, this is your purpose. Be fruitful and multiply. Jacob failed over and over again to live out or to, and to live into his name. And God knew he would after this. We're privy to the rest of the story. But Jacob's not. Jacob doesn't know. It was in his defining, this defining moment that God's purpose was given to him. The silver lining. The mighty sculptor was sculpting. And because of it, Jacob would have a king come through this line. Being fruitful and multiplying just isn't about more progeny. Isn't just about more kids in the world. Being fruitful and multiplying is a reconstitution of the purpose to which you and I were created to be. That is to bear the image of God, fully human in this world. And as we bear the image of God in this world, fully human, we are to call other people up into worship to bury their idols and to be renamed children of God by Jesus Christ himself. Be fruitful and multiply is you and I moving out, bearing the full image of God, being fully human, fully alive as we follow Jesus. It's at the name of Jesus that every knee will bow and every tongue will confess. It was at the incarnation of Jesus that God's full purposes came into view and the fruitful and the multiplication can actually happen. Why? Because Jesus lived, he died, and he rose again, being the first fruits of new creation so that now everyone who is in him can actually live a new creation life. You can live in a way that is fully human and fully alive. I'm begging you, do not leave this place without knowing that grace restores your nature and that grace is found in Jesus. You can be fully a human and fully alive only in God, only in God. I'm not gonna make any concessions about this, friends. There's nothing in this world that can make you fully alive. It's only in God. The one who spoke the world into motion, the one who gives life with his very breath, only in God can we have it, only It's at the knee, 
It's at the name of Jesus, friends, that we can be dignified. And when we lose our name and take his up, we are remade to be fruitful and to multiply. Because it is only in Jesus that you and I are fully healed, fully restored. So when we call upon the name of Jesus, he alone is strong enough to save. So what I'm saying to you is rise. Your shackles are no more for Jesus Christ is strong enough to save. So I'm pleading with you, Christian, lay down your idols, bury them. Jesus was strong enough to save you and he's strong enough to remove your idols and to walk with you through the pains and the joys of this world. And what I'm saying to you, friend, if you are not a Christian in here and your identity is being rooted in something else, Jesus is saying to you, rise. Stop being shackled. He is strong enough to save. So this is how we keep going. This is how we continue on in this world. Is when we fail and when we become gripped by idols again and again, we return to Jesus. We turn to Jesus. We remember his name. Jesus means God saves. We remember his name and the name that he gives you, child of God, saint, redeemed. Live in your name. Go ahead, live in your name. Stop living less, live in it. So if you're like me, you might think, God has defined my purpose. I was once excited about that. I really was. I was once excited about that purpose because I assumed my life would be really easy with God. I assumed that it was going to be all smooth sailing and okay. So does coming to faith in Jesus mean that my life with God is only up from here? <laughs> well, I'm glad you asked. <laughs> because that gives us the last point is God's grace culminates in new life emerging from death. Yeah, that's abrasive on purpose because it's true. God's grace culminates in new life emerging from death. Every new beginning comes from some other beginning's end. Every new beginning comes from some other beginning's end. And that was a popular song from Closing time, right? Yeah, every new beginning comes from some other beginning's end. So as the narrator moves us along in this final episode of this part of Jacob's story, we get that exact expression on display. We've just had this magnificent handful of verses where Jacob is calling out his family to bury their idols and he gets a new name and then immediately what happens? They're traveling on the road to Bethlehem. And Rachel comes under hard labor. The text says that she was dying. Reuben, in verse 22, sleeps with Jacob's bondservant. And then what happens at the end? Jacob reaches Mamre. There's, a, there's this picture in my mind of a beautiful homecoming as he engages with his father again. And then what does the text say? Isaac dies. He dies. All those years away, all those years of sojourning, all those years of being far from home, and I come home, and my father dies. My father dies. So we have these three people. And what I want to say to you is that God is trying to say to us, the way to life is through death. The way to life is through death. And what I want to do is I want to take a snippet, a snapshot at each one of these people. How is new life coming from death? So let's talk about each one briefly. In verse 16, Rachel, in labor, the text mentions hard labor. And as Rachel is giving birth, the text says her soul is departing, for she was dying. Jacob was just named powerfully by God. 
He was just said, be fruitful and multiply. And now the love of his life, the apple of his heart is dying. And she dies while giving birth to his son. And in the, in the midst of this dying, you see it get named. As Rachel says, you are the son of my sorrow. Benoni, the son of my sorrow. Names matter, right? They matter. The son of my sorrow, what is she communicating? That in her death, she's anguishing and in pain. She's saying, this son that I've birthed, even though the midwife in the moment of her darkest and deepest pain says, be encouraged. You have a son. The thing that she called out so, so much to Jacob to have. Give me a son or I will die. She dies while having a son. What irony. She dies while having a son. And she says, this is the son of my sorrow. Jacob is walking with God in this new name, having buried his idols. And there's death. There's death right there. Oh, I thought it was supposed to be easy. Or let's look at Reuben. Reuben, it's literally one line. What is happening here? Why did Reuben go to sleep with Bilhah? Well, scholars are all over the place in this way, but most of them are coming to the, the conclusion that Reuben chose to sleep with Bilhah in spite of his father. In spite of his father. And the reason why is because his father loved Rachel more than Leah. Leah's his mother. But Reuben brings great disgrace to his family by sleeping with his father's concubine. Now, there's nothing in the Bible that is, that is saying that this is okay. If you look at Leviticus and Deuteronomy, it actually condemns this very thing. It condemns incest. It condemns it from happening. But what God is trying to show us here is that there's another death happening. Another death. But what about Isaac? How about Isaac? Like I said, there's a homecoming. Isaac has been away from his son. The last time we heard from Isaac was when he told Jacob to run. He told him to run. And he said, God be with you. God bless you. He comes back. His father breathes his last. Now the text makes it so much more beautiful than that by saying he was old and full of days. And Esau and Jacob got to bury him. But there's death. There's a passing on of something happening here. Something comes from death, friends. It's not an upward mobility with God. What I want to say is it's actually downward. So if you would have told me back in 2010, when I first came to Christ, and Jesus had saved me that 13 years into my walk with Jesus, that I would have faced into some of the things that I would have faced in. Friends, I tell you right now, I would not be a Christian. I could say that to you right now. But by the grace of God, within the first year of me becoming a Christian, the matriarch of our family dies. I'm like, okay, how do I do this? How do I mourn while being a Christian? I'm supposed to be happy she's gone to heaven. Or there's a relationship that before I even met my wife, I was so invested in, so much so that I was engaged. And that fell apart. Why is this happening? Why is this getting ripped away from me? Or I get married to my lovely wife, Alicia, four months into our marriage. I'm in the hospital, about to die. Diabetic ketoacidosis. Look it up. It's crazy. Diabetes. Hardship. Why? Why? I'm following Jesus. Why? The next year, Alicia, ectopic pregnancy, almost kills her. Two liters of blood needs to be pumped in. Why? Why I'm following Jesus. Why? This isn't how it's supposed to be. I'm not supposed to almost be dead. I'm 26 years old. Our first child isn't supposed to die. 
My wife isn't supposed to be on the edge of her own life. Or we move down here, kicking and screaming in some ways, wondering like, God, why are you calling us to a place that I did not imagine coming? I wanted to plant a church. I didn't know it was gonna be here. And since I got here, I don't, I don't know if you know this about my story, but my life has been spiraling down. I got drastically sick to the point where I had friends look at me and go, I don't think you have two weeks to live. And when I showed up to this church, this body, this place, I couldn't even walk up the steps. Why? Why, God? What are you doing? I don't stand before you as someone who has all the answers. I stand before you as a picture, as an illustration. A painful one, one that I do not wish on anyone, one that I wish that God would not do, but he does do. Because his ways are not my ways. His thoughts are not my thoughts. His glory is for my good. And somehow, and I'm not just saying this is a trite cliche, I'm saying this is somebody who right now in this very moment is actually wrestling with the reality that new life can actually come from death. Can it actually come from death? The pain is still in my hands. I don't know if it's ever gonna go away. Can he? Yes. Will he? Maybe. One day? Uh Uh-huh. Can he heal me? Yes. Can he heal you? Yes. Can he take the pain away? Yes. Will he? I don't know. That's not for me to know. It's not for you to know. We can cry out though. But one day, yes. One day, exile to homecoming. Remember, exile to homecoming. So what I'm saying is that death becomes the path to life. I can only now at this venture look back a handful of years ago and go, why in the world was that happening? God is weeding out something in my life and and making me step more fully into the reality of what it means to be fully human. God uses the what's or the who's to shape the who of you. In the same way, he's using death here. So how does this connect for us? How does life through death come? And I wanna say it's in the details, in the details of their story, in the details of what's happening here. So let's look at Rachel. Rachel died on the road to Bethlehem. Bethlehem. Bethlehem is a prominent place in the Bible. Read Matthew 2 and you'll find Rachel's name in there. Why? Rachel's death is honored in the narrative pointing to Jesus, the birth of Jesus. Bethlehem means the house of bread. Again, names matter. The house of bread. Rachel dies on her way to the house of bread and she weeps for her children, not just her children in the present, but her children in the future even, the ones who will come from her lineage in the people of Israel. He's, she's weeping for them. You are the son of my sorrow. Why? Because they're exiled and they're far from God. She's weeping for them. And you know what? Her weeping will not be wasted because death, even though it took her life and buried her right outside Bethlehem, the house of bread, new life comes in a manger in the house of bread, the bread of life. Jesus comes where Rachel is weeping to wipe away every tear and to bring joy. She's weeping for Israel. She's weeping for those far from God who are exiled because they need to be brought home. And you know what? Jacob couldn't bring them home. David couldn't bring them home. Only Jesus can bring them home. Jesus would bring all those who trust in him out of exile and into home. Well, what about Reuben? How does Reuben's story intersect in this way? What does it get us? Well, if you look at the genealogy stuff that happens right after, the protogeniture is what it's called, the list of his sons, what does it say right away? And in parentheses, right after Reuben's name. 
the firstborn. Reuben, when he slept with Bilhah, forfeited his right to be the firstborn. And the two sons subsequently after him forfeited their right to the firstborn blessing before him when they killed countless people in chapter 34. Who does that leave then for the firstborn right to go to? Judah. Okay, where does Judah fit? Anybody familiar with a lion? The lion of the house of what? Judah. Who is that lion? Jesus. Jesus. Therefore, the blessing falls on Judah. And through Judah, through Reuben's death, the death, Reuben doesn't physically die, but his firstborn right dies. And from the house of Judah, we get the line of Judah, Jesus. And what about Isaac? Oh gosh, Isaac. It's obvious, friends. Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Anytime you hear it in the Old Testament, I am the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Jacob's death is a passing on of the generational blessing. And from this lineage comes the king. Not just any king, but the king of the world, the king of the universe, the king that reigns over your heart and over mine and over our lives in this place, the king that will have every knee and every tongue proclaim his name and bow before him. All three of these characters act as a converging road. Now, you may have heard that all roads lead to God, but what I want to say to you is that multiple roads lead to Jesus, and Jesus leads to God. There's a lot of ways that people can get to Jesus, but if you get to Jesus and the Jesus that is being portrayed here in this book, in these Bibles, that is the only way that you will get to God. And these three stories converge in making that reality a thing. Jesus draws all of them into his story. The culmination of God's grace producing new life through death comes from the life of Jesus. All of them had to die. All of them had to suffer. All of them experienced pain and agony and lost joys and happiness. And it all culminated in the fact that Jesus was born. So God's grace presses into the multiple deaths that we die daily, yearly, over the span of life. And it presses in like salt in a wound. It is the moment of death's sting that we were reminded that death has no more sting. But along the way, when we have that sting of death and we press in the grace of God through Jesus's life, that healing happens. And along the way, new skin covers the wound. And through the deaths of this life, we can experience new life. And the reason we can be certain of this is no matter what or who comes after us, it's because Jesus suffered, Jesus bled, and Jesus died. But Jesus did not just stay in the ground. God incarnate suffered, bled, and died. And on the third day, out of darkness, the light shone. What does John say? That the light has come in the dark and the darkness cannot and will not overcome it. So when everything is its darkest and death in your life seemingly has won, light continues to show because Jesus sits on the throne and the savior to which you follow is not aloof to your pain and suffering. The way to home is through exile. The way to life is through life, death, burial, and on the other side, resurrection. We don't know what resurrection looks like, but we know it's gonna be sweet. We know it's gonna be good. And quite frankly, I didn't know that I'd be able to stand here and do this. I didn't. This is a miniature microcosm of a resurrection. And I'm not saying it to look at me. I'm saying it to look at God. Look at Jesus. 
Because the only way I can even stand here before you is because of Jesus. Because honestly, friends, I told you, I would not have asked this on anyone. But because I don't just believe in a man, but I believe in a God who came as a man and lived a life and died a death and was betrayed and had pain and suffering and agony. And if I one day look on him, I will see the holes in his hands. It tells me and it tells you that death is the way to life. No other options. When Jesus died, he blew the back door off of death so that you and I could have resurrection. So the shape of exile to homecoming is that of life, death, burial, and resurrection. So that now for all who have faith in Jesus, death is just the doorway. And these little deaths that you experience, these little pains that you have, they're just momentary, light and momentary afflictions that are preparing you for the eternal weight of glory that you will one day see. So taste and see that the Lord is good. Jacob's life, he traveled and there was pain and there was agony and there was death. But all along the way, when he got home, what did he have? God was with him. And God said to him, be fruitful and multiply. So what I want to say to you today is come to Jesus. Be fruitful and multiply. Let's pray.